Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's six-ish on Sunday night. Welcome to the Sharon Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5. My topic on tonight's show is the power of music. Music can heal us, calm us, inspire, excite, and transport us, and overwhelm us. Its effect can be almost primal. You might have noticed if you've ever been to Drum Circle, for instance, at Aliso Creek Beach here in town, or leapt onto the stage at Bluebird Park on a summer Sunday. Music can place us back in time. Here, as an extreme example, is a story from neurologist Oliver Sacks from his book the man who mistook his wife for a hat. When Greg came into the hospital in 1977, his memory seemed to stop at about 1970, so he was then seven years behind the times. And of course, when another 14 years passed, by the time we'd got to 91, he was 21 years behind the times. Although his ardent love for the Grateful Dead continued and he was always playing their records, singing their songs. In 91, although not exactly a deadhead myself, I met Mickey Hart, who was one of the great drummers with the Grateful Dead. I met him because we both gave testimony to Congress about the power of music, the therapeutic power of music. He invited me to come along to a Grateful Dead concert. Now, I had never been to such a thing in my life. I, I mean, I, I'm a Bach and Mozart man, but hell I, why not? I'd been invited, and in fact, I was given a seat behind the Grateful Dead on the stage. And um, their rhythm and the beat got to me as it got to everyone else there. And I, to my own amazement and the amazement of, of my friends, actually got up and started dancing on the stage. And I also saw how, I don't know how many people there were there, 10 or 15,000 people, everyone was moving with the music. And so I was completely transported. So then I thought, we have to get Greg to a Grateful Dead concert. This was on, I think, something like September the 14th uh, of 91. And having felt the effect even on my own sort of classical self, I was doubly determined to see the effect on Greg. And on September the 17th, 1991, we took Greg to a Grateful Dead concert at Madison Square Garden. Said, Mr. Can you tell me 
where a man might find the pain. I shook my hand, and was all to say. Take a load off, man. Take a load free. You're tuned to the Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's one and only listener-supported, member-supported public FM radio station, KX93.5. My topic tonight is the power of music, and you've been listening to famed neurologist Oliver Sacks tell the story of a man called Greg who lost his memory in the 70s and is stuck back there along with his love for the Grateful Dead. So Oliver Sacks took Greg to a Grateful Dead concert at Madison Square Gardens. He accompanied them with a huge voice and with enormous enthusiasm, and one would not have thought for a moment that there was anything wrong with him then. He was completely with it and knew all the songs, although where the Grateful Dead did some of their later songs, Greg was very puzzled. He didn't recognise any of the songs, although he recognised their style. And he said in a mystified way, this is like the stuff the Grateful Dead might write someday. It's like the music of the future. On the way back from the concert, I kept playing CDs of the Grateful Dead to keep the mood and to sort of keep them in Greg's mind. And at the end, when I said goodbye to him, he said it'd be a wonderful evening. He'd never forget it. The next morning, I visited him, and I uh, asked him about the Grateful Dead. He said, never been to the garden. After this, and seeing his tremendous reaction at the concert, we used Grateful Dead songs above all to elicit memories and emotions associated with the songs, memories and emotions to which he otherwise had no access That was famed neurologist Oliver Sacks telling a story of a man restored by the power of music, but only temporarily. The power of music is my topic on tonight's Sharon Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's one and only listener-supported, member-supported public FM radio station. Music in itself can't always cure us, but music has palliative powers. It can be used therapeutically. It can be used to calm us, lull us, think lullabies. I'm not going to play you an example, obviously. My aim isn't to put you to sleep, which lullabies can do, as proof of music's manipulative powers. It can also be used to excite us or scare us. And here I will give you an example familiar to those of you of my generation or movie buffs.
amazing what one note or one rhythm repeated and repeated and repeated can do to our psyche. That was, of course, from the movie Psycho. And here on Laguna's KX93.5's Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, dedicated tonight to the power of music, is another powerful musical theme printed on my memory that sets my heart racing with foreboding. Oh so sweet, but oh so sinister. It's the relentlessness of that single tone with the occasional jarring crash of a cymbal in between. The power of music to one nervous. Music doesn't always calm us. It can upset, thrill and frighten us. Music in its many forms serves many functions. Here are three doctors who deal in music therapy gathered to discuss this topic of the power of music, which I'm pursuing on my Sharon Hour tonight on Laguna's KX93.5. They are Dr. David Granite, he has a program called Health Matters, Dr. Barbara Royer, who's executive director of a program called Resounding Joy and COO of Music Works, and Dr. Arnie Patel, who's the author of Music, Language and the Brain, and a senior fellow in Theoretical Neurobiology. Here's Dr. Roya introducing herself, followed by Dr. Patel. There's always music in our lives. My mother's great-grandfather played music for the Tsar in Russia. I'm first-generation American. We always had music and loved it and did everything from piano lessons to oboe, clarinet in high school. And then when I started college, I decided to become a music major. It was between math, music, and languages. I also fell in love with music as a young person through a different route. I was lucky enough to grow up at a time when they had music lessons in the schools and you could take a musical instrument as part of your normal schooling and there was a band. And so I started studying clarinet. I fell in love with music, although my other main love was science and the biological sciences. And as I continued into college studying biology and graduate school studying biology, I I had this other passion and I thought, is there any way to bring these two sides of my life and my loves together and maybe take biology as a way to study music? which wasn't a very common thing to do at the time, but I had a very understanding PhD advisor who let me run with the ball, and that's what I ended up doing, is pairing those two together. Music is, first of all, a human universal. I mean, nobody disputes that it makes sense to study the biology of language, right? Because language is a human universal. We all do it. We realize it's important in human life, and language disorders are very important. 
Well, music is another human universal. We've never found a culture without music. There's probably just a few uncontacted human cultures left in the world today, in the rainforests, or maybe in the Amazon. And I think we can be absolutely sure that one of the things they'll have when we finally meet them is some form of music. We talk about bird song and whale song, and we, you know, we don't have to be human to sing. There are other species that make beautiful acoustic displays that we call song. But if you look at human music side by side with many of these remarkable animal displays, I think you see some key differences. The, the degree of creativity, the, the extent to which it's flexible and it can change, the extent to which it encodes emotional experience or a range, serves a whole wide range of functions in our culture and in our lives, as opposed to animal vocalizations which tend to serve rather limited functions. A male bird defending its territory or advertising for a mate, he does that at particular times of day, at particular times of year, in response to certain hormone changes in his brain. That's a kind of a different ball game, I think, than human music, which serves just a huge variety of functions across cultures and also plays a very important role in our ability to communicate and connect with each other. So that's the brain creating music. Now what about the music creating the brain? Well, the two sides of the coin. What effects does the music have on the brain and what can music teach us about the brain? It's a really young field. The use of music in therapy dates back at least to the 40s, whereas the study of music from a neuroscience perspective really has only taken off in the past decade as a serious endeavor that involves a community of people. And so it's a young area, but some of the key findings are, one, that music activates a tremendous amount of the brain. You know, we have these wonderful tools now where you can see what's happening inside a healthy human brain as it processes something. And you've seen pictures in the newspaper of fMRI, this technique where you see a brain and hot spots lighting up. This is the part of the brain that lights up when you see a face. Well, one of the main demonstrations so far is that when you hear music, a non-musician just hearing music, it's not like there's a little hot spot that lights up in your auditory region, that this is the music here. It's like a Christmas tree. It just lights up a huge amount of the brain, including areas that we traditionally associate with other cognitive functions like language, can be activated by hearing purely instrumental music.
I don't know about you, but that theme inspires my own symphony of emotions. One of the best film noir themes ever, as far as I'm concerned. The theme from Chinatown is part of my topic on tonight's Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5, delving into music's godly power. And I'm playing you part of a discussion between three doctors who deal in music as mental therapy Music therapists are excited about neuroscience research because intuitively and watching our patients, we know that there's more going on than what science earlier has said. And so it's exciting that the technology is confirming what we see in our response. You see patients who have strokes learn to move and speak. Children that have developmental disabilities that may not be able to talk might be able to sing or can learn communication with music. Dementia patients who might even be in their fourth stage supposedly aren't supposed to learn new things, but if we work with them over a period of time, they recall rhythms in terms of their short-term memory, which is always amazing to me to see that. And so there's example after example. Music therapy, when it started in the late 40s, was during the time of World War II. What happened was that they had musicians come in and work with the vets with what they called shock syndrome, and they realized quickly that these musicians needed to have more training. And then so the Michigan State and University of Kansas started programs, and in 1950, the Music Therapy Association was founded. It's always been a difficult sell to the medical community, and this really works. The psychiatrists in the VA hospitals saw it. They understood it. But to keep that moving throughout the years has always been a challenge for us because everybody connects to music in some way or another, or almost everybody. It's a very small percentage that do not respond to music. When I went to medical school, nobody taught me to write a prescription for music. Right, and that's what I hope the future is, music therapy. We have learned through fMRIs that, as Dr. Patel said, many and various parts of the brain light up like Christmas trees at the sound of music. So using music as therapy, not as cure necessarily, but as palliative therapy, can be extremely helpful. The Power of Music is my topic on tonight's Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's one and only KX93.5. And I'm currently playing you a discussion between three doctors all involved in music therapy. The host of the discussion, Dr. Granite, purely by his interest in all health matters. And the other two doctors, Dr. Roya and Dr. Patel, through their dedicated work in this particular field, a very new field of using music as a therapeutic tool. It shouldn't have been a surprise that the fMRI lights up. Why so long? I think neuroscience as a field has just thought of music as something maybe not so much a biological phenomenon, but a cultural phenomenon. And so it wouldn't be the first thing you would think about studying. It makes sense to study auditory perception, hearing. But music is obviously a very complex phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so it's only in the past few years I think cognitive neuroscience has decided to take a real stab at this and relate it to other brain functions. And that's been a, a main theme of my work, is the extent to which music is not just in its own little box in the brain, but it engages other brain functions that we use for other purposes. A big theme of my work has been the extent to which music relates to language processing in the brain. To what extent when you process purely instrumental music without any words, are you still using some of the same machinery in your brain that we bring to bear when we process ordinary spoken language of the kind we're having right now? And the answer, bottom line of my work so far, has been a surprising extent of overlap between those two things. That some of the same mechanisms we use when we process the sequences of music, which have a lot of structure to them, are involved in processing the grammatical structure of language. Some of the same mechanisms that process the ups and downs of my voice as I speak right now are involved in processing musical melody. And this does have implications for things about, for example, how you would use music to retrain language networks after brain damage. 
Talking about communication with music being as powerful as communicating with language, doesn't that speak to you about how wonderful and hopeful the world can be? It does to me. You're tuned to the Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5. My topic tonight is the emotional impact and therapeutic power of music. I just played Vivaldi's Concerto for Guitar, and I think guitar is one of the most expressive of instruments. Here's another guitar piece by Coldplay, appropriately called The Scientist, given our discussion. This one with lyrics to fortify it. I was just guessing at numbers and figures Pulling the puzzles apart Questions of science, science
to KX93.5 Sharon L. Me, Sharon James. My topic tonight is the power of music and its interactions with the brain. And I'm currently playing a discussion between a group of doctors who use music as therapy and find it particularly helpful in aiding individuals with language difficulties. The idea that language and music are connected, what are the implications for a developing child, parents who are exposing their kids to music and language, because that's a developing brain. We'll talk about the damaged or diseased brain for recovery, but what about the developing brain? Well, I think one of the implications has to do with second language learning, and this has been some nice research that's come out showing that people that have some musical training actually influences their ability to acquire the sounds of a second language. Part of what's challenging about learning another language is that every language has a different set of sounds. And the classic example is for a Japanese person, hearing the difference between an English L and R is very difficult. Well, we had a colleague, student that I'd worked with, actually, who did his PhD at UCSD, Bob Slevik, who did a nice study showing that Japanese that had some musical training and aptitude actually were better at picking up this linguistic distinction, even though they weren't trained on the linguistic distinction as part of their musical training. But somehow the musical training actually improved their ear for language. And then another colleague at Northwestern, Patrick Wong, showed using neural measures that the brainstem encoding of linguistic sounds, this is very early auditory encoding of sound, in the brainstem is actually sharper in musically trained people than musically untrained people. So these circuits that we always thought were kind of hardwired are actually plastic and they can be shaped by experience and musical experience can actually kind of sharpen their tuning and that affects the processing of language sound. So it seems like music training actually gives one a leg up in learning more language. Well, and, and Barbara mentioned math and music, that those two go together? Well, I think using music songs to help children learn math, language, we see that really helps. Just even the, the music, uh, the theory, it's mathematical. You're listening to The Sharon Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's one and only KX93.5. My topic tonight is music and its power over our brains and ability with language. You may have heard of the Mozart effect, where in late 1990s, research was done, endorsed by Dr. Alfred Tomatis, that made various claims about listening to Mozart in the womb and immediately beyond. Not only was it supposed to improve your intelligence generally, but particularly in the area of spatial temporal reasoning, which is our ability to visualize spatial patterns and be able to manipulate them mentally. This is key in the professional areas of engineering and architecture, of course. 
but also in general areas of maths and science and in everyday life games and art. Scientists have since slightly poo-pooed all the rather extravagant claims of the Mozart effect, but they have verified that people who took music lessons during childhood do seem to have a faster brain response to speech later in life, even if they discarded their instruments since. Neuroscientist Nina Krauss at Northwestern University says, when we get older, our neural responses slow down, especially in response to very fast and complicated sounds like consonants. The study of a small number of adults between the ages of 55 and 76 who listened to a recorded speech sound while researchers measured electrical activity in their auditory brain stems showed that the more years a person spent playing instruments during childhood, the faster their brains responded to the speech sound. Other recent studies, including the Harmony Project, a program that provided free instruments and instruction to at-risk kids in Los Angeles, showed that after a year of training, those who'd undergone music training were better able to synchronize the beat, remember the beat, and that can help in promoting other cognitive skills like reading and speech. Virginia Penhoon, a psychology professor at Concordia University in Montreal, discovered that the younger the child started musical training, the stronger connection between the motor regions of the brain. Musical training before the age of seven can have a particularly beneficial effect. The problem with the promotion of the Mozart effect, according to Professor Naomi Krauss, was the Mozart effect involved the passive listening of music, whereas more of a benefit comes from the active engagement with an instrument. And no, the authors of the Mozart effect didn't posit that only Mozart would have this effect, but they did make the point that the benefits to spatial temporal reasoning were dependent on complex and not repetitive music. You're tuned to The Sharon Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5, talking tonight about the power of music. Back to Doctors Granite, Roya and Patel. We talk about how the brain is touched by music and with language. After a stroke, someone has difficulty speaking, does music help them? We've found in our work, it does, it takes a while, but we usually start with a point of reference, working with the family to find out what familiar songs they really like and trying to work with those songs and in, in using You Are My and then having them finish the word and working right. on getting that out and then using language that's appropriate for them when they go home and they're requesting, uh, I, I need to get up and get coffee. I need to get up and get, and then helping them with their language to do that. Yeah, I, I think we've all seen stutterers, for example, who can sing without stuttering. Yeah. I could speak a little bit to that, yes. too. I wanted to mention the work of a colleague, Gottfried Schlaug, who's at the Harvard Medical School, who's been working on exactly this. So music therapists and stroke therapists have developed this technique called melodic intonation therapy. It's often used for patients that have a relatively large left hemisphere stroke that makes it difficult for them to articulate speech, so they have trouble getting words and sentences out. Though sometimes they can sing, which is kind of remarkable, which suggests there are some differences in the networks for music and speech, obviously. Therapy's been used for about 30 years. It's basically this sort of thing that Barbara was doing, this kind of intoned speech. The therapist does that with the patient, and they do it together, and then that seems to recover some language function. Well, what Gottfried has done that's very nice is he's actually done some neuroimaging of patients before and after this kind of therapy. And he's discovered that 
part of what's happening is that this musical kind of speech, this quasi-singing, is activating right hemisphere brain circuits, which seem to be learning to take over for some of the damaged left hemisphere circuits. And so there's kind of a, a retraining of neural uh, circuits. And then in further work, he's actually shown that some of the anatomical connections on the right side of the brain, between the back and the front of the brain, the so-called articulate fasciculus, actually the fiber bundle actually increases in volume with this training. So this speaks to the issue of neural plasticity and how musical training actually changes the structure and functional organization of the brain after brain damage in a way that can help compensate for damaged circuits, including language circuits. You're tuned to The Sharon now with Sharon James, that's me, on Laguna's KX93.5, talking tonight about the power of music on the brain. Here's Dr. Arnie Patel. One of the things that is of increasing interest in the study of music in the brain is the extent to which music facilitates social interactions between people and has implications for non-musical social behavior. There was an interesting experiment that was published in Psychological Science last year done at Stanford. They gave people a game, and before the game, they did different kinds of activities just to get people to get to know each other. Some of them were just going for a walk together. Some of them were singing a song together. Some of them were other kinds of activities. But the point is, some of those activities were musical and some were not, but they were all kind of getting acquainted activities. Well, it turns out, after doing a musical activity together, like singing together, they were more likely to cooperate on this non-musical game if they did a non-musical activity, they were more likely to compete with each other on this non-musical game. So there seems to be something about music that makes people feel like they're part of the same team and connects them. Yeah, we do a lot of team building with nursing staff, hospice staff, and also in the corporate environment. And there's something about rhythm using what I call non-musician-proof instruments where people can pick up instruments and start playing. And there's just that connection at a nonverbal level when people start relating to the music and what they hear, the musical outcome. But then with children with autism, once they develop the trust with the therapist and some of the other children in the room, they love to make music together. You hear about little bands in the area with three or four kids, high school kids that have autism get together and play and make music and really fulfills a lot of needs. You just described very important roles that music can play in brain, social scenarios, kids collaborating versus competing for language development. Music today is considered extracurricular. Why isn't music central to our educational system? You know, we have a project we're doing with Resounding Joy called Sound Minds. We're working with zero to three-year-olds of teen parents because we know that statistically it shows that children of teen parents, by the time they reach age three, are usually not quite developmentally at the same level as other children. So we're doing this parent bonding program with these children, and they're working on language and social using simple little songs. So we work with the infants and the toddlers, and the moms are very much an important part of that. It's amazing what these kids are learning through song and movement. Every child should have that experience. Well, I haven't heard anybody who wouldn't benefit from this. Right. You're tuned to the Sharon Hour on Laguna's Cakes 93.5. I'm Sharon James, and my topic tonight is the power of music. And I'm playing you part of a discussion between a couple of doctors, doctors Royer and Patel, involved in music as therapy, and wondering why this fairly young field hasn't been explored before and more extensively. I think basically what are needed are some sort of studies to look at what influence music in the schools has on a wide range of things, not just on test scores and math and so forth, but on all kinds of social behaviors, cooperativeness, the tendency to stay in school versus drop out of school, development of things that are sometimes harder to quantify and take a little bit more work. And I think that kind of evidence will be forthcoming in the future because there's a growing interest in the effect that 
that music has on the human psyche. And a lot of these things are measurable. It's just a matter of getting out there and actually doing the studies. Yeah, and there's use of music therapy for grief, pain control, depression. It's very powerful. We work at one of the larger hospital systems in San Diego County, and we get referrals from physicians who write actually prescriptions and nursing staff referrals, music therapy referrals. And most of our referrals are for pain management, anxiety, depression, long hospital stays. Music at the onset seems very non-threatening, but it's very provocative. One of my professors once said that the music can penetrate psychoses. Nothing stops it. And so it's a very powerful tool. If you know how to use it to help, uh, you know, we use music to change behavior. So if there's a patient that's dealing with an end-of-life situation or just recently uh, has a patient that was put onto hospice, then we can talk to them about the music they like and start singing some of that music, get them engaged. And many times patients who are terminal have a really difficult time expressing themselves or talking to their families, and so we do songwriting where they can take familiar songs and change the words to fit their situation, and then we record it and we give it to the family as a gift, very important gift. I remember one of my friends in the Midwest was working with a teenager who was terminal, and she and this teenager wrote a song, and they put it onto a tape. And before the therapist could get it to the mother, the teenager had passed away. And so the therapist then later sent this tape to the mother, and the mother just, she emailed therapist back and said that this was such a powerful healing tool. She listened to it every day and it helped her be with her child and express herself. And so that's one way that therapists work with patients in medical settings and in hospice settings. In addition to all the emotional work of music, I think there's also a lot of interest in my field in extent to which music activates, say, the motor system, and it can be used for treating motor disorders. So Parkinson's disease, one of the symptoms is difficulty with gait, initiating and maintaining steady gait. And it's been found just observationally by um, Michael Tout, who's a music therapist in Colorado, that synchronizing to a musical beat while you walk actually helps these people move. And he's developed a whole rhythmic gait therapy based on this and has shown that this leads to superior gait performance opposed to the traditional kinds of walking therapies. There's a lot of money being spent on finding a better drug. So, this is so direct and, and not simple, but clear, uh, another approach. Well, it builds on something that we all experience and know, and it's a universal, which is that music is a powerful force for driving movement. All over the world, people move to music. They synchronize their bodies in dance. Happy. You almost can't help it. Yeah, right. and so that's, a, that's something we're studying at the Neurosciences Institute where I work, and we think it's a very important aspect of music, this kind of connection between the auditory and the motor system. And actually, we can use music to study that kind of basic question about how different brain systems get coupled up during perception and behavior. Can everybody really enjoy music? Can everybody participate in music? Is there any reason that anybody can just say, oh, it's not for me? Actually, this is quite an active topic in my field now. It's been given a name, congenital amusia. There's a researcher in Montreal, Isabel Peretz, who's devoted a lot of time to studying this. And she's actually shown there is a small percent of the population who has genuine perceptual problems with music. Now, you're describing yourself as enjoying listening to music. Maybe you you think you don't have a good singing voice. There are some other reason you call yourself tone deaf. But there are a small subset of people who can't tell whether two melodies are the same or different. They have great difficulty recognizing tunes unless they have words to them, including sometimes the national anthem, dramatic things like that. But there are people who, uh, and I think I'm one of them, that when they sing, they think they're singing well and they're not. Right, but that's different. True tone deafness seems to be a perceptual problem. It does seem to exist, but it's a small percent of the population. And an open question is the extent to which it can be modified by training. Say, untrained ear. But most people who call themselves tone deaf, it turns out, actually have perfectly good ear for music. And mm-hmm. if they get trained, they can actually yeah. do quite a bit. And somewhere uh, in your life, maybe somebody says, oh, stop singing. Then people say, oh, I'm tone deaf. And then when you talk to them further, it's because a music teacher, a classroom teacher, early on said, stop singing. So they developed this complex. And that would be a mistake, wouldn't it? That would be a mistake. 
mistake, yeah. Imagine you were three or four and somebody said, oh, stop trying to throw a ball. You're hopeless because you can't throw as good as a professional pitcher. Yeah. Oh, you know? so, that would be lead. ridiculous, stop right? Li- right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but naturally you'd grow up thinking, oh, I'm hopeless at throwing a ball because I stopped when I was four because I was discouraged. And you, you are hopeless by now because you're an yeah. adult and you haven't practiced. But it's probably similar with a lot of people who think they're quote-unquote tone deaf. They just stop trying and, uh, you know, with training they could have Improved. Encouragement. That's what we need here on KX93.5's Share an Hour. She took my arm. I don't know how it happened. We took the floor and she said, Oh, don't you dare look back. Just keep your eyes on me. I said, You're holding back. She said, Shut up and dance to me. This woman is my destiny. She said, You're tuned to the Sharon Hour with Sharon James, that's me, on Laguna's KX93.5. My topic tonight is the power of music. Music has all sorts of magical and therapeutic powers. It has the power to increase intelligence. It has the power to problem-solve in many areas, as you heard from neurologist Oliver Sacks at the start of this program, and the power to heal. But what it has, like nothing else, is evocative power. The power to summon up forgotten memories and remembered love affairs. Here, the evocative is expressed in the lyrics, too, which happened to be written a very long time ago by Hoagie Carmichael, based on a poem by Jane Brown Thompson, a song sung beautifully and simply by the inimitable Chet Baker. I get along without you very well Of course I do Except when soft rains fall And drip from leaves Then I recall The thrill of being sheltered in your arms Of course I do But I get along without you very well I've forgotten you just like I should Of course I have Except to hear your name Or someone's laugh that is the same But I've forgotten you just like I should What a guy What a fool am I To think my breaking heart could kid the moon What's in store Should I fall Once more 
know it's best that I stick to my tune I get along without you very well Of course I do Except perhaps in spring But I should never think of spring For that would surely break my heart Into Listening to the Sharon Hour on Luna's KX935. I'm Sharon James, and tonight's topic is the power of music. Music is one of the few things in this world that can transcend language and still manage to affect global communications. Most people across the universe know exactly what to expect when they hear this no lyrics required. Here's the spoof of it. Thank you. 
So we get the mood of that. It's fun. It's taking the mickey out of something established that prides itself on its cool. I don't know if it's so associated with the cartoon that we just see that pink panther leaping across the screen, but it definitely has an animal flavor to it, doesn't it? That music. Music can be humorous. It can be moving. It can pack an emotional wallop without any words at all. Here's the theme song of an old movie called Amy Vu Brahms. Watch you tonight on this Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935, on tonight's topic on the power of music, and it's music that evokes the classical with something more popular. You're listening to the Sharon Hour. Sharon James, that's me, on Laguna's one and only listener-supported, member-supported public FM radio station, KX93.5. Tonight, my topic is the power of music. And there's nothing more powerful than romantic music, particularly coupled with a romantic film, particularly a French romantic film. 
Here without words, proving that music transcends any language, musical scores from two end scenes from romantic movies where the reconciled lovers leap into each other's arms. See if you can recognize them. For those of my generation, this will be very familiar. This is the scene where he runs to meet her train. She climbs down onto the platform and sees him and they fall into each other's arms. from the French film A Man and a Woman, an homme et une femme. Okay, same scene here, pretty much, except he's not meeting her off a train. Richard Gere minces into the factory in his white officer's suit and Deborah Winger, in her trendy cap, turns and jumps into his arms almost 20 years later in An Officer and a Gentleman. You're tuned to the Sharon Hour. I'm Sharon James. This is Laguna's KX 93.5. Every day. Love 
So that's about it for my Sharon Hour tonight on the power of music. I'm going to play you out with something that stirs me equally, whether it's sung in English or Portuguese, and maybe stirs me more in Portuguese, just because of the smushiness of that language, which gives further evidence of the power of the oral, of which radio is king, and especially this station, Laguna's own KX93.5. You can hear more of our shows and more of a variety of music during the week and anytime online on kx935.com. But for tonight, this is Sharon James of Laguna's KX93.5 Sharon Hour, wishing you a great week ahead, hoping you'll tune in again next Sunday night at 6, and leaving you here with the musical theme from Black Orpheus. It ends with an instrument called a feixuva, a Brazilian rain stick used to make rain. So I'm testing the power of music here in California. with my